0: This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to PortlandDistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at PortlandDistro.com. Welcome to this week's episode. This is a long time coming episode. I've been talking to you guys on and off for the last part of the year about the uh, Ramones tour my old band Otis did back in the 90s. Now Otis was a band that existed between uh, 1994 and approximately mid 1996. And um, it was the first band I released music with went on the road traveled to Europe did all sorts of cool stuff like that and uh, one of the things we did that was really cool was we did a run of dates with the Ramones now some of you younger guys uh, I think the importance of the Ramones might be lost because you know it's quite old Um, music has come a long way since they were relevant in some ways but to me they were a crucial band when I was growing up in the 80s, they were um, these leather-clad phantoms that haunted New York City's Lower, Lower East Side and were pioneers in American punk rock music and um, very, very important to me. Uh, it seemed like Black Sabbath, the Ramones, Motorhead, Black Flag, those are all bands that really, really were intense on me back in those days. So, um, So, yeah, I'm putting together couple episodes where i'm describing straight out of my tour journals uh what happened on those days and uh how cool it was and that sort of thing uh good stories very nostalgic looking back and reading the stuff again because uh, quite a bit of time has passed it's uh, a lot of water under the bridge um you know sadly some of the members of the ramones are gone and um you know it's uh it's it's important to me to talk about this stuff before I get going, I want to shout out the rest of the Horsemen of the Podcasting Apocalypse. Kicking the week off, we have Brandon Legion with Horror Wolf Six Six Six. Next up, Jackie Smiths into the Necrosphere. Wednesday, of course, is everything went black. The next day, Thursday, I return with Mike Scandato and Jeff Kashid for Necromaniacs, Necro Thursday. The week ends with Spitball Media, featuring Mike Scandato's brother John Draper, and definitely check that out. Saturday is a day off from podcasting, Mm -hmm. um, but Carl Hikara comes back on Sundays with Soul Knox, and Carl and I are uh, engaging on the second phase of our Darkness Weaves project, and um, we trade off each month appearing on each other's shows to talk about the work of Carl Edward Wagner uh, We've just now started getting into the Cain stories So it's brand new material um, You know, a new chapter in that saga And uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun This is going to carry us for the next Almost two years probably of material to go through Also, Iblis manifestation Lurking out there in the void Manifesting when need be Just at the right time Cheyenne delivers a new episode just when you need it. I also like everyone to check out the Patreon Uh, for as little as $1 a month. You can support the show. You get access early to these episodes for $5 a month. You get all the bonus content plus the early access. And for $25 a month, you can be a sponsor similar to Portland Distro, who we read at the head of every free episode Also, be sure to to, uh, check us out on social media. I always forget to mention that because uh, I don't really partake too much (laughs) in social media. Just mainly you can check me out on Instagram. I mean, we have Facebook and X and all that sort of stuff, but um, it's mostly auto-posted. I I probably won't be responding to anything through Facebook or X, but if you want to DM me directly, hit me up on uh, Instagram either under my own personal account, Michael D.C. Hill, or through Everything Went Black, or through Necromaniacs. One of us will get back to you on Necromaniacs. So here we go.
1: Beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with a baseball bat, oh yeah, oh yeah. Beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with the baseball bat Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh ho Beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Oh, yeah.
0: My love for the Ramones started way back in the early 80s When I was just starting high school There was a couple older guys who had gotten into punk rock music And uh, prior to that, I was pretty adamantly in the hard rock heavy metal world favorite bands were black Sabbath rush scorpions Judas Priest you know stuff like that ACDC DC was uh, was my regular uh, diet of music you know Van Halen was definitely a, a pre- pretty pretty heavy-duty uh, rotation during those periods of time there are these older guys That were into being in bands. They played guitar. And one particular guy. Mike Katz. Was the best drummer. Out of uh, anyone in my high school. He was a couple years older than me. And he was all about it. Long haired dude. Good looking guy. Long black hair. Really really uh, prolific uh, band guy. Playing drums. He was all about it. Van Halen. He was playing in bands with dudes who were out of high school. Doing gigs at bars, things like that. You know, he was like way ahead of everyone. I remember um, one summer, Mike went to California, and when he returned, everything had changed. Short, spiky hair, a leather jacket. On the back of the leather jacket was painted four leather-clad dudes with sunglasses and long hair, titled "The Ramones: Road to Ruin." was painted on the back of this dude's jacket and I was like the Ramones interesting what's this all about Mike had brought back the let them eat jelly beans compilation which was very very important black flag the feeders DOA all that stuff was on there we all made cassette copies of that record and distributed it amongst everybody and um, that was the beginning of the whole thing the Ramones were mysteries back then. Information was impossible to find. You had to experience things firsthand. You had to read about it in the Village Voice, Brave, Lower East Side, New York City in the 80s, and try to check this stuff out. Now, I, at the time, I didn't realize their career had started in the 70s, and they were actually part of that Lower East Side vibe, including bands like Television and Blondie, and like all that sort of stuff. I was ignorant to any of that stuff back in that, back in that time you know, I was in high school. So I started in on the Ramones catalog. You know, it was easy enough to play a guitar. And before too long, I was in my parents' basement with a bunch of other kids, learning all these songs, playing them. I'm like, wow, I can learn like five songs in an afternoon. And we have a whole set. We started playing at parties, doing that kind of thing. So that was one of the more important bands. Because their music was fast, short, easy to play, and had this intense sort of vibe to it. Right before I graduated high school, the Ramones had played in a place called the Agora Ballroom in Hartford, Connecticut, which was not too far from where I I lived with my parents. And that was the first time I'd ever been to a punk rock show or seen them perform. And I remember driving out there with some friends, um, hanging out in the parking lot, and all these people wearing leather jackets and like cool hair, and they were playing all kinds of music in their cars that I'd never heard before. All this new stuff. Finally, it was time to go into the show and check out the band. And uh, this band called The Queers opened for them, who um, probably you guys will remember them. They were, They were okay. You know, not my thing, but pretty good crowd seemed to be kind of into them. You know, they had some fans, some level of enthusiasm. But when the Ramones took the stage, it was like a bomb had went off. And I remember being crushed to the front of the barrier and everyone was just going nuts. And it was like one of the most intense experiences at that age of 16 that I had ever experienced in my life. And I remember leaving, feeling exhilarated, all my clothes had been sweated through. My pants were stuck to me. My shirt was useless. It was torn. <laughs> I think I was shirtless when I left that place. And I just remember going home and being completely transformed by the experience. And then understanding deeply that some somehow this all had to figure into my future. May 3rd, 1995. Laundromat. Boston, Massachusetts. It's Wednesday afternoon, and I'm washing some of my clothes. The band is scheduled to play this big WFNX-sponsored shindig on Lansdowne Street tonight. The Royal Trucks, Shudder to Think, and a bunch of other local and national acts are also on the bill. We're then going to leave for the dates with the Ramones. We have three dates coming up, Norfolk, Richmond, and Baltimore. I slept until about 11 and did some push-ups, stomach crunches, and stretched out a little. On the way back to the house, I walked past Brighton High School, a huge imposing building on Washington Street next to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. It looked like a concentration camp. It must be a major bum-out to go to school there. I wonder how many kids pull guns on each other each day Or how many kids smoke out on crack before class. I walked on. Brighton is a strange place, to me at least. Technically, Alston and Brighton are one big neighborhood. But to me, it seems different. Everyone here seems as if they've always been here. When 6 o'clock rolls around, the streets shut down. Except for the liquor stores and the depressing local bars. There's always these characters hanging around. I would walk late at night through this neighborhood and observe the post-alcoholic carnage of people leaving the bars staggering around like fools. I felt like a ghost, insubstantial, haunting these streets. What a bummer. What a weakness. Down the street from the house is the building with a sign over the door that reads, The Yelena Restaurant. There are no windows and the door is a solid, dull, red color, as well as the rest of the building. It looks like an adult bookstore. I never see anyone go in or go out. Just walking by that building creeps me out. I miss living in Lower Alston. I miss Henry's Diner and the 7-Eleven. Ah yes, the 7-Eleven. Open 24 hours, 7 days a week. It'll never let you down. Across the street from the 7-Eleven was a Dunkin Donuts and I would alternate between going to 7-Eleven, buying bean burritos and jolt colas and sitting in the Dunkin Donuts drinking coffee by myself writing into this book on weeknights alone. It would close at 11 o'clock so I would leave and go back to the house. Most likely go back to my room and listen to music, go to bed, wake up in the morning, go to work, and do everything all over again. For the two years that I lived in Lower Austin, the 7-Eleven was the only constant in my life, the only thing that didn't fail me. The 7-Eleven was always there like an oasis in this rotten town. I remember back to those nights, the hard, desperate ones that seemed to stretch on forever. On nights like that in my room, it seemed a little smaller, a little bit more claustrophobic. I felt a little bit more alone. The only place to turn was 7-Eleven. I walked the walk up North Harvard Street and get a bean burrito and a jolt cola and everything would fall into place. Eventually, the night shift clerks would come to recognize us. We'd come in late at night to fuel up on jolt cola Josh would look at the porn magazines and the crazy Korean guy behind the counter would give him a hard time. One time I came in by myself and he wanted to know where Josh was because the new swank had arrived. I don't live by 7-Eleven anymore and my life is just not the same. May 4th, 1995, Richmond, Virginia. I'm sitting in the van outside of a Kinko's in this beat part of town. The other guys are inside making stickers. The first show at the Ramones happened earlier tonight at this club called The Flood Zone. The ball was somehow dropped by someone and the club as well as the Ramones crew thought that we weren't on the bill. At least that's what they told me. I found a flyer hanging on a light post that read The Ramones on tour with Otis and then listed the other local band. The club printed up the flyer so someone lied to me. To make a long story short, we played first at 8 p.m. Despite the fact that we had a signed contract that said we are to go on immediately before the headliner as direct support. We drove all night from Boston to get the shaft by a club in this nowhere redneck city. On top of that, the local band that went on after us used our equipment. That always sucks. Totally unprofessional. Sometimes it hurts to eat it like this. All you can do is take it At least we got, to, we got paid our guarantee The sound man told us that the other shows will be better We drove all night after playing the WFNX Rears Pole Award show It was a total mob scene They closed off Lansdowne Street And every club had three or four bands rocking out They set up a stage outside And the Boss tones did a set Every meathead in town showed up To that gig. I remember checking out the crowd right before the Boss Tones were getting ready to play. They were up doing a line check with their plaid outfits on, and there was a dude in the band that all his gig was dancing. That's it. He didn't play an instrument, he just danced on the side of the stage with these Doc Martin shoes on. The guys looked like they were warming up to start kicking each other's asses. I never really understood Ska or why such knuckleheads enjoyed that style of music. I mean, I guess uh, Desmond Deckers is cool, like the OG stuff, but these like new hardcore style ska crossover bands never really did it for me. Once the music started, people just started beating each other up and I retreated inside. For 15 bucks, you can go to all the clubs, watch all the bands and get loaded on overpriced beer. Luckily, I was able to get away from it all. We played at Bill's Bar in the 11.15 time slot to a fairly packed house. We turned up and kicked it hard. The cops told the doorman not to let anyone else into the club, including the press. When we were done, we loaded out directly into the van and left. We spent all night on the open road. We stopped somewhere in Connecticut to look for a men's room. We tried the gas station. No luck. We tried the 7-Eleven. No luck. Even the mighty 7-Eleven let us down. It was getting desperate. We finally reached a gas station that had this one-shot bathroom. We reached Brian's mom's house in New Jersey at 6.30 a.m. and crashed for a few hours. I woke up on the floor of the downstairs living room. My ass felt as if it had been eaten by bugs. I got this painful welt on my right cheek. It still hurts. We drove all night to get here and got the old short stroke. I thought that this shit would end once we started working with a booking agent, but there's always some half-assed moron at some shitty club who's going to try and pull some bullshit on you. After our set, they made us some killer food and we got to hang out with this cool bartender and her boyfriend, the guy who fixed us the spread. Also, I saw a Sam Black Church sticker in the men's room and that made me feel a little bit better. I bet a lot of shit goes down in this neighborhood. I can't wait to leave and find a nice truck stop to catch some sleep in. I can't explain how cool it is to see the Ramones play live. Being part of the show, even though tonight's show was weird and we were sort of alienated by the club, it was still really cool to, uh, to watch the Ramones play live. It's the lineup that features Joey, Johnny, Marky, and CJ. CJ, of course, is the new guy. The young guy, the kid, even though he's several years our senior. He spends a lot of his time hanging out with the crew and is kind of separate from the other guys. He seemed really friendly, came over and introduced himself to us. Really cool guy. When I was a kid, back in the 80s, I was able to see the version of the Ramones that featured Joey, Johnny, Marky, and the legendary Dee Dee Ramone. I'm glad I got a chance to see that line up. It's clear that in 1995, the Ramones are doing this for a paycheck. And I do not mean that in any disrespect. They are a well-oiled machine with management, professional road crew, sound checks, the whole business. They played all the hits. And they also played Pet Cemetery," a song that, to me, stands out. As something that might have been written for a paycheck. However, that song is very good. May 6th, 1995, Baltimore, Maryland. Last night's show was at this club called Hammerjacks. It was in this John Waters film called Serial Mom. So it had some degree of notoriety. We rolled into town pretty early. We didn't see the huge Ramones tractor trailer or any of their entourage. So we went to find the coffee and a music store. We ended up at this downtown tourist area. Everyone was looking at us. The guy came up to and asked if we wanted some free promotional samples of cologne. (laughs) He then asked if we were in a band. He turned out to be pretty cool. So we put him and his girlfriend on the guest list, and we ended up staying at his place last night. Later on, we loaded in and dug in for the wait. The Ramones crew turned out to be real nice and have been taking pretty good care of us in the sound department. I figured that they'd all be these jaded, burned-out, hard guys who don't give a shit. As part of our rider, we got a dressing room. It was a small room upstairs with a case of beer and some assorted soda, juice, and water. We found this G-string and two bottles of baby oil laying on the floor. It was kind of creepy. It made you wonder about this place and what actually goes on here. We got on the stage at 9 p.m. and the place was packed. It was mind-boggling. We played the set and as usual, the time flew by too fast. This is by far the largest crowd I had ever played in front of and it was exhilarating. Time sped by. It was trippy seeing people just going nuts, beating each other up out in front of the stage. It was really cool to talk to Johnny. I haven't had a chance to talk to Joey at all. Everyone seems to just disappear except for CJ. I noticed that Marky has been standing side stage during our set, and I think that's really cool. You know, Marky Ramone is a legend. Aside from being in the Ramones, he was in a band called Dust. I remember briefly having a conversation with him after our set and saying, I'll be seeing you guys on MTV next year. I doubt it, but wouldn't that be nice? CJ and the crew are the guys that we talk to the most. They're cool guys. We hang out, talk shit, and basically have fun. The Ramones show up in a van in all of their black leather gear, pretty much ready to rock. They sound check for a couple hours, run through a few songs, and then they're gone. Not to be seen until right when the set starts. Rock and roll story number one. After the set, we loaded out into this hallway. There were groupie-type girls running around everywhere. These two girls approached me and asked if I was in the band that had just finished playing. They told me that they were together, quote-unquote. They couldn't have been more than 18 and had total rock and roll bodies and were dressed in this, like, very very suggestive manner. They had their hands all over each other. One of them said they wanted me to sign her ass. And before I could agree to it, she had her pants down and pushed her almost bare ass at me. It was a nice ass. I put an Oda sticker on it and signed, With My Love, Mike. Her girlfriend felt left out. So she wanted me to put a sticker on her stomach. She pulled up her shirt so I would have better access. Of course she was wearing no bra. (laughs) And uh, there they were. These nice breasts. I was so wound up, I couldn't peel the sticker paper. So I just signed her stomach and gave her the sticker. She told me that she could fit her whole fist in her mouth. She balled up her hand and pushed it all the way into her mouth. I thought about other things that she might be capable of and left it at that. Bob, one of the stagehands, came up to me and said, Mike, we really got to get this gear loaded out.